This morning, I want to uh, continue uh, with a series that started uh, several times ago, which I've been calling From the Ordinary Habitual Mind to the Buddha Mind. And that came out of uh, a previous series where I was trying to identify the stages, we might say, of at least some versions of the spiritual path, uh, inspired in part by Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey. And we were looking at what from that poem and from we could also look at the life of the Buddha, what are some archetypal stages? And in doing that, we saw that at least the way I identified the initial stage was that in some ways we are taking life for granted and not living with awareness particularly. It could be good, could be bad, but we're not living with awareness. We take life for granted. And I, I was saying that we're in a way just, uh, in a word, stuck with the ordinary habitual mind. And, that's, and when I say mind, it's really code for mind, body, and heart. And so that led uh, us and, and, and myself really to want to ask, well, what is this ordinary habitual mind that we want to transform? Can we look at it in more depth? And so that led to this series and to particularly uh, identifying 10 different manifestations of this, what I'm calling ordinary habitual mind. We could say there are 10 ways that we're not awake. It's another way we could talk about it. And the other side of it is that when we get to look clearly and carefully at these 10 aspects of the ordinary habitual mind, we know uh, significantly how to practice, how to change, how to transform these aspects of of our being. And so it can be helpful to identify these different aspects. And so the first ones that we've worked with identified our ordinary mode of thinking, our, the ordinary way our mind is. And some of it's uh, culturally situated. You know, in this particular Western culture, mainstream, with uh, increasingly high reliance on electronic devices, on the screens and so forth. But we, but we still look back at uh, what was the conditioning around our ways of thinking, the way our thinking works. Uh, and then the second focus was moving to look at the uh, ordinary habitual conditioning around the body. And again, for many in our culture, our original looking at the thinking was to see Uh, an increasingly thinking-dominated culture in which we're not necessarily so aware of our bodies or what we call our hearts, our emotions, our our deeper sense of kindness and care. And a lot of that is sort of historically situated. You know, it wasn't other cultures are different uh, for better and worse. Uh, But this this is a lot of our conditioning. And then last time, we looked at our, what we could call our hearts. What's the ordinary habitual conditioning around the heart? 
And uh, I'm going to continue with that theme today. And one way that we could look at that theme, the way we looked at it last time that I'll expand on, is we could say it in a very simple way. What blocks the heart? What blocks the kind heart? And what helps it to open? So that's the focus. And that can be a set of two very, very good questions that can guide what we call our practice, our, our intentional work with our own being in all its manifestations to transform. So those two questions can really guide us. What blocks our open heart? And some of the patterns are going to be pretty common. Some of them will be more personal. And then what helps us to open? And in terms of the tools and practices that help us to open, we can look at meditative practices and we can also look at what we might call other practices, some of which we explored last time. What helps us to open our hearts? Well, for some, it's being with beauty or being with people who help you open your heart, right? And so we want to continue with those uh, two questions, okay? And as, as a guide to transforming the, the ordinary habitual heart. And so one way to talk about the uh, conditioning or the state of our ordinary hearts when we're not awake, not so open, we talk about it in a few different ways, that the, the, the heart is not so accessible. And uh, we looked at that uh, as occurring for a number of reasons. We, we had a very interesting time just getting people in the group naming what makes their own hearts inaccessible. And so I took, I took some notes on what we came up with last time. One of them was simply being caught by time constraints, being busy, being busy, having a to-do list. Sometimes that wouldn't necessarily lead to the heart not being available, but for many of us, it does. It's very hard sometimes to have the heart open when we're busy, consumed with doing, and so forth. Again, uh, not necessarily would it have to be that way, but it is for many of us that was named, right? And that, that uh, tendency to do is very strong. I can remember one person with whom I worked who talked about being on vacation, or I think, do you say in, would you say in Dublin on holiday? Right, okay, a little different language. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, lived in, I lived in England when I was younger, so I, I'm partly, partly in the culture. <laughs> okay. And uh, so one person reported being on vacation on holiday and being at a time where there was nothing to do and just feeling the internal pressure. There must be something to do. What should I do? Right. Anyone relate to that? It's very... Is very, very common, right? And so that sense of doing, of wanting to do, uh, as something that shuts down the heart, the kindness. And again, it wouldn't necessarily have to. Something, one way that we could actually intentionally practice might be to say, let my doing be informed by kindness. 
What would help that? And of course, a lot of us do that, so to speak. Uh, anyway, but what would help? What would help me to have my ordinary doing, or do I get so wrapped up in kind of a certain way that the mind gets? You know, do this, do this, get through my list, and so forth, right? And I think it's very familiar to many of us. Another force that locks the heart that was named was when there was a hurt in relation to a loved one. That something just shuts down the heart, a kind of pain of the heart can shut us down. It can obviously lead us to be reactive, blaming, have a particular story. All of those can contribute to the heart not being available. Right? Um, Another one that was named was uh, self-centeredness. Being preoccupied with one's own concerns could lead the heart to be shut down for others and very possibly also for oneself. Another was was described as apathy. Simply not caring. Being in a state of not caring for different reasons. You know, what might, what, what do you think, what might lead to a sense of apathy? Maybe just sh- you can shout out a word and I'll, I'll repeat it. What? Depression. Depression, yeah. Certain psychological states. Depression could, could lead that way. Poor health. Poor health could just be, again, it could be, uh, could lead to a kind of a depressed state, just not really having the, the energy so much, right? like a sh- shutting down of the heart, the body. I guess that relates. What else? Otherizing. What? Otherizing. Yeah, creating uh, an other of, uh, you know, we do that sometimes because of social condition. We create others of people who are not in my in-group or my in my social group, whether because of race, gender, sexual orientation, age, whatever, right? So we do that, yeah. Being overwhelmed with tasks again, the doing I can, I can have, you know, just something shuts down with all these kind of situations. So, I'm naming this because we want to look and see what are my top two or three, because then we can try to address them, right? And so again, we have to use our mindfulness and wisdom to be able to see what blocks my heart in this case. Of course, it's also going to block other things. But what what blocks my heart? Another one was a lack of uh, self-love or self-acceptance. Could be a kind of blaming of self. And we looked at that question of if one doesn't have care and love and kindness to oneself, can one have care and love towards another? So another one was anger, irritability, certain strong emotions. They probably could add fear. Anxiety, right? Hard for the heart to be open in those kind of situations. And some of those could be in the moment. Some of those could be the result of unresolved pain from the past, potentially trauma, right? So there's a long list of reasons why the heart might be closed, right? But again, the key is I think I'm naming these. What are the ones that I can see in myself and how might I address them? Because again, the the nature of our practice is going to be twofold, seeing what blocks the heart, number one, and sort of in a parallel way, deliberately 
doing that which, uh, in the words of the Buddha, gladdens the heart. Deliberately going into kindness, care, uh, warmth, compassion, and so forth. That, 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 those are our two strategies. It's really, in general, the way our practice works. We both go into the hard stuff, number one, and then we access the good stuff, number two. And we may, in a given period of time, have a particular ratio of those two. When I was first doing retreats, my retreats alternated between those two. I'd have a really hard retreat, mostly looking into difficult patterns and so forth, but then I would have a good one. And so I, I was, it was balanced enough so that I was still enthusiastic, right? It would be hard if it was just the negative, right? Just the hard stuff, but that happens sometimes, you know, for particular periods. Some others that were named in the group, being impatient, uh, fear, uh, attachment to one's own views and stories. And then uh, I named a few others. Uh, the, the traditional Buddhist uh, core list of the problems would be greed, hatred, and delusion. That's going to block the heart, right? And I gave some stories from when I and Diana Winston taught uh, our greed management class, right? And we we looked at uh, uh, the nature of greed as being very self-centered, not concerned with consequences, uh, not having the interests of others in mind and so forth. And again, we could have different forms of ill will, hatred, and then just being being. Delusion could really cover the way that we're just caught in whatever, our own views, our own stories, our own preoccupations, just not seeing because we're caught in a, caught in a narrow, narrow way. And I named some other ones such as, I hope this is okay, naming a lot of things that block our hearts. It's like, it's a long list, right? And you're hanging in there with this list, not getting overly... Negative or depressed yet? Okay, okay. I just want to check. Okay, because it, it is a long list. I also, if that wasn't enough, all these things, I said, well, of course, the historical conditioning of the last four or five hundred years plays a major role as well, <laughs> which is that, you know, the conditioning of the modern world I, I referred to at the beginning is to actually split off mind, body, and heart. Right? And it's complicated. There are gender dimensions to it, but we we split off the mind, body, and heart. And you know, for a long time, the epitome of Western civilization is essentially to be um, a Western rational man. That's it. That's the peak of the evolution of humanity, right? And we, views on that are changing, right? <laughs> You know, where I was thinking of some of you probably studied Piaget if you went to college. And guess what the uh, high level of development is in his model of adult development or of human development? Guess what it is? Well, people joke that it's to be um, basically like a, a, a male Swiss scientist. Piaget happened to be from Switzerland <laughs> and was a psychologist and, and so forth. So it's to be basically a rational man able to 
you know, reflexively think out things, right? And so we have that model, and that model, there's not much place for the emotions or the body, right? And so that, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that, that model is a strong one, and certainly influenced my own upbringing. As I mentioned, it has a strong gender dimension, because uh, in a lot of the prevailing models, women were not thought to be as capable of rationality, and we're more on the emotional side, right? And how many of us, whether men or women or something in between, got that kind of conditioning? Yeah, so quite strong. So that's going to play a role. That's going to play a role in the cultural conditioning to stay a lot with the mind is going to play a role in this. It's certainly very strong for myself, right? It'll both say that the place which is most valuable to hang out to is more is a kind of a disembodied, non-emotional mind, right? That's the conditioning. So you can see this is very strong, all these different aspects. Some of them come with the cultural context, the social context, and some of them are come uh, also with the human condition, right? And so I thought to talk about uh, several of these. Let me see where my... My notes are. Oh, the other, the other piece I didn't mention that's important is that even sometimes when our hearts are open, our hearts get restricted to a narrow group of people. That's very common as well. And of course, we have with the teachings of the Buddha a teaching that, that has as an aspiration that the heart be open and available for all beings. You know that, and I quoted last time the Metta Sutta. You know that we have that that text of saying, uh, you know, uh, let me see where my my quote is. Yeah, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. It doesn't say all humans, and it doesn't say those in my own inner circle. <laughs> May all those in my own inner circle be at ease. (laughs) Not what the Buddha says. He says, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. With a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So, that can be the aspiration. And we can also notice to what extent does my heart um, open but to a limited circle. And I think in terms of training, that can be a way station to open to a limited circle. And in a way, that's what our loving kindness practice does. We open where it's easier, but we don't stop there. We keep going. Yeah, that's really the practice. We, we open where it's easier, and at first that's going to be a more limited circle, but then we keep going. And the, the understanding here is that actually the heart is bigger than we think, that we may have a more, what, uh, limited view of what the heart is and the potentials of the heart. We think, oh, I don't have enough warmth for everyone. I better just restrict it. 
And so we, and the training is a lot to have that sense of an expansive heart. So the, the teaching is both that the heart is in its deep way expansive. There's also a teaching that that kind, warm heart is there in all beings, actually. And in human beings, it's said to be, again, from, from the ancient tradition, said to be a core capacity, even in those who do uh, negative things. That, the, that there is a, what's called the brightly shining quality of heart and mind, which does get covered over. And so, again, there's a sense that our hearts get covered over by all the things we've mentioned, right? But that when we do the practice, we discover something that is shining, that is deep, and that actually is there in all human beings, even those who do horrible things, right? And so, one, you know, some of you know that uh, one of the great stories in the text is that of... Uh, uh, Angulimala, who uh, was actually a serial murderer. I think the, his na- very name, Angulimala, Mala is like, uh, you know, beads, you know, like, uh, like the wrist beads. And Anguli, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, is basically means fingers. He killed people and he cut off their fingers and made a, be- made a what a bracelet of them. And he met the Buddha. And the Buddha didn't say, you don't qualify. <laughs> right? He actually took him on and he, became, he reached the highest levels of practice. That's an interesting story, you know, in terms of possible application to the world, right? That is the story. It's, it's powerful, right? He did, the story goes, he did, however, even when he was, uh, was profoundly transformed, he still had to deal with the karma of his past deeds. <laughs> and so he would be this shining being, but he would go by certain villages where people remembered him and they would throw stuff at him. <laughs> right? So um, in any case, I, I mentioned that to say that the view of the potential of the heart is that it's there for all of us, it can be expansive, it can go to all beings. And one of the uh, books that I think is a very important one that I like a lot is by Rebecca Solnit. Some of you may know her, her writing. She wrote a book called A Paradise Built in Hell. And this was a study of how people reacted and responded after natural disasters. Uh, and, and some some actual more human-caused disasters. But she looked at earthquakes, tornadoes. She also looked at what happened after 9-11. And she looked at a lot of different societies. And she, what she found was that the authorities typically have the view, when they're disasters, you better watch out because people are going to loot and cause problems. She did not find that. There was some. But she found that when there was not basically... Uh, when there was not fear there, she found that people, this is what she said, in the wake of an earthquake, a bombing, or a major storm, most people are altruistic, urgently engaged in caring for themselves and those around them. 
strangers and neighbors, as well as friends and loved ones. Right, so she found that. and she, Some of the most powerful stories are those of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And she quoted uh, Dorothy Day, you know, who, who grew up in Oakland and was, I think, uh, eight years old at the time. And Dorothy Day went on to become this beloved founder of a uh, Catholic worker, uh, spiritually grounded activist, you know, uh, lived for over 80 years. And she said, what I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterwards. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped uh, in Idora Park and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. Quite a statement, isn't it? Of course, after the crisis was over. <laughs> but that, that's what she said. So, so it gets blocked. And so what we want to do is really uh, see what blocks the heart. And you know, sometimes we can look specifically. We can take on uh, some of the bigger ones could be self-judgment or judgment of others. You know, and we want to, when we have certain patterns that are strong, it could be self-judgment, judgment of others in the sense of being judgmental. It could be fear. It could be anger. It could be being caught in one's stories. We use the tools of our practice. So, you know, I, as many of you know, I work a lot with people who have self-judgment or judgment of others in the sense of being judgmental. And the core tools we use are mindfulness. We want to notice the patterns and study them. We want to really look at them really carefully. What are my patterns of being self-judgmental? What tends to trigger it? We want to really know them well. We want to bring in mindfulness. This is the reason that practicing mindfulness every day is so crucial because the key to working with these difficult patterns is to have enough mindfulness so that we notice them as soon as possible after they occur. If we don't have mindfulness, that won't happen. We'll be stuck in them. And so that's why with a daily practice and then special attention to some of our core patterns. Notice the patterns of self-judgment or being judgmental of others. Name them when they occur. If they last for a while, be mindful of them. What's it like in the body? What's my body feel like when I'm self-judgmental? For a lot of us, it's a little bit like being in a fog, like just like uh, in a trance in a way. What's it like when I'm really angry towards someone? What's it feel like in the body? What's my heart like? What are the stories I tell? Get to know the stories well. Study them with mindfulness. What that does is it prepares us to really notice them when they're there. Now, sometimes with these difficult patterns, they're, they're so strong that it's very hard or impossible to be mind, mindful. So as we often look at here, these Wednesday mornings, it's really crucial to have a number of uh, practices that help you get unstuck, like if the heart gets blocked over. And this is where we would talk about some of the 
practices that unblock the heart. Suppose I'm caught in self-judgment and it's too strong for me to be mindful of it. I'm just caught in it. I'm just maybe depressed, maybe just in a, a, you know, a funk. What do I do? And there we want to, first of all, know that that's the case. So even if we can't be mindful of the distinct pattern, we can be mindful enough to know I'm stuck. Even if 95% of me is stuck, 5% says, Donald, you're stuck. And that 5% can be the pivot. That's what's interesting about mindfulness. You can be really, really stuck and know you're stuck. And that 5% can lead you to say, here's a good course of action. Let me talk to a friend. Let me, let me put on the music that really tends to knock me out of funks. Let me go to a beautiful place and so forth. So we have to have a repertoire of things to do to take us out of funks. You know, and we could say a lot about that. Sometimes, you know, where there is past trauma, we want to do things like, uh, sometimes we have to have professional help with that. Sometimes we need to do special work, you know, but the key is to have a repertoire of ways to come unstuck if we get stuck. Now, some of the heart practices are wonderful for this. Uh, When I give guidance for people working with uh, self-judgment or being judgmental of others, I say, have a mindfulness practice, but also have a heart practice. Because one of the things about the heart practices is that they're actually antidotes for being stuck. Partly because practices like loving kindness or compassion or joy or some others like forgiveness in which we repeat phrases over and over, they have the quality of uh, strengthening concentration and having, when we're doing them, a pretty good level of concentration. Concentration by itself has the power to get us unstuck. That's good to know. You know? And in fact, the Buddha gave uh, loving kindness as the best antidote to fear. Some of you know the story in, the, in some of the uh, old texts where a group of practitioners were meditating in the forest and they were having a good time and they had sort of consulted with the uh, tree spirits who were living, who were in the forest. And the, uh, the tree spirits had said, fine, stay here for a while. You're very welcome. And then they stayed, they kind of overstayed their welcome. And the tree spirits got grumpy. And the tree spirits did things to scare the practitioners. They could manifest horrifying sights and really, really bad smells, which they did. And basically, to use a Buddhist technical term, the uh, practitioners were freaked out. They went back to the Buddha. He said, now is the time for me to teach you loving kindness. And they went back and they, they looked, practiced it some. They went back, practiced loving kindness. The tree spirits did their scary things. Didn't work. The loving kindness was stronger. Eventually they won the tree spirits over and the tree spirits become, became the practitioner's allies. And they said, you can stay here as long as you want. <laughs> Happy ending. <laughs> right, so we want to we practice uh, loving kindness. Get it to a good level. And you know what I give as a kind of rule of thumb is 10 minutes a day done every day gets you to a level where in the middle of the night 
when you're overwhelmed, the heart shuts down, something, you know, you think about what happened yesterday, oh my God, you know, negative, you know, it could be any of the things we mentioned. And then something like loving kindness can really be effective, can really work. So mindfulness with these difficult states, loving kindness, having a repertoire of things to do when you get stuck. These are, these are probably our three core tools, you know. And then, you know, there are ways to go yet deeper, but those are our, those are our starting points. So we, we also, the second way that we practice, the first way being identifying what blocks the heart and having ways to work with those blocks. The second way is to deliberately go into beautiful territory. This is what our practices of loving kindness are, compassion, joy, equanimity, gratitude, forgiveness, empathy, and so forth. And so these can all be practices that we work with on a daily basis, at least maybe one or two of them. You know, and, and I was going to, had I arrived on time, today I was going to guide us again in the loving kindness practice, which we did last week. And so uh, I'll just say that we have, uh, if it's new to you and you haven't practiced it, we have recordings on Dharma Seed and all of the Wednesday morning sessions are also at that website, dharmaseed.org. And so we want to learn some of these practices. We want to we want to develop in uh, we want to develop in what are called the divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara, the practices of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's one of the things that it, it, they work with. It's a beautiful set. Is that they also integrate our wisdom and our sort of our minds and the dimension of wisdom in our hearts because we bring in both equanimity, which brings in the wisdom dimension, but has a heart quality. We think of equanimity, we sometimes talk about it as like the heart of the wise grandmother who has seen everything. There's a kind of balance and equanimity there, but there's also care. And so... You know, when we bring these heart practices together, when we bring in the equanimity, it also brings in the wisdom. And so we go against that earlier divide I talked about that splits off the mind and heart and body. And in fact, you know, I find in my own teaching, when I teach these heart practices, I actually try to kind of bring in instruction that's not there in the tradition to address our particular conditioning. You know, for, for most of us in this culture. And so when we practice loving kindness and work with phrases, the repetition of may I be, you know, my phrase is may I, may I rest in the awakened heart. May I be safe and free from harm. May my body support my practice. For others we might say, may I be healthy or as healthy as possible. And then the last one I use is may I be held by love. And when I teach the uh, development of loving kindness, I find it really important to keep it connected with the body because it could be just verbal, just repeating those phrases. So can I have a sense of grounding in the heart energy in the body is very, very important. So we want to connect the heart practices with the body and, and with, with, with wisdom.
And there's a way that all of these heart qualities sort of interpenetrate. There's a beautiful essay by uh, the German uh, monk who went to uh, Sri Lanka, Nayanaponikatera, who wrote a very influential early book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which has been influential. He said this essay is called, uh, what was it called? The Four Sublime States. You can look it up on, on the web. Uh, particularly the, the Four Sublime States, particularly if you go to a website called Access to Insight, you'll find that essay. It's a beautiful essay, probably written a long time ago, probably, I think, in the 1960s. And he's, he talked about the relation of the four because as we develop more in the heart, the wisdom quality and the heart quality become enmeshed. It's very beautiful. So we, we lead towards what we might call the wise embodied heart. That's where we're going. That can be there, you know, that can be there when we're with ourselves, when we're with others, when we're in interactions. This is what he said. Equanimity is the crown of the four sublime states. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of them, of love, compassion, and joy. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade uh, equanimity. Metta imparts to equanimity the selflessness, the boundless nature, and its energy. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference. Until equanimity has reached its perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the world, to stand the test by strengthening itself. Joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its sometimes stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the three states. It gives to love an uneven, unchanging firmness. It gives compassion an uneven, unwavering courage and fearlessness. Equanimity means patient, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. And so we want to have these practices which tend to open the heart. And if we do these several times during a day, we just hang out with the heart that's been accessed and is open and kind. We just do that more and more. We do it where it's easier first, and then we bring it into more and more situations, more and more situations that are maybe a little more challenging or a little more complex. That's our practice. Start, that's the, that's the principle of all training. You start where it's easier and then you bring it out increasingly where it's more difficult or more complex. That's what we do. So what we want to do is find where are my practice periods during the day? Maybe I practice loving kindness in my meditation. Maybe I find a way of bringing loving kindness or compassion into the flow of my day. I've sometimes mentioned that I have uh, students who work, I'm thinking of some especially, who work in the helping professions. One who's a doctor who tries to bring in metta as much. She works in the emergency room to bring it as much into uh, her practice as possible. A lot during walking meditation, going down corridors. Right? And uh, another person who's a midwife brings loving kindness into much of her work with people. You know, we can do it. We can bring loving kindness and some people do it when they take a walk. 
you can do loving kindness. I mentioned that I, f- I, found, it, I found it interesting and it's clicked that I, I do uh, lap swimming about four or five times a week and I do uh, loving kindness during my lap swimming. For some reason, it really, really works. I kind of have a bunch of people I give loving kindness to and they, each lap I give it to one person. And I get to the wall, another person. <laughs> right? And so, again, for some of us, it's have a deliberate practice to be with beauty every day in ways that open your heart. Music, art, you know, the trees, the forest, flowers. The key is taking it as a deliberate practice so that you hang out there every day, so that you're just spending more time with the kind heart. You know, it could be, it could be prayer. It could be something like that. Uh, we mentioned last time, I think, uh, uh, one example, like uh, taking maybe uh, uh, being with warm water every day. You know, it can just be really soothing and just kind of open the heart, you know. So, you know, uh, mindful hot tubbing. <laughs> you know, while doing due diligence with the amount of water you use, <laughs> so forth. So, and then the, the other piece, and then I'll, I'll close with this, is that another horizon is to bring the practice to more beings. So you can take as a meta practice in public spaces. Can you do meta to many beings as you are in a public space, waiting for public transportation, being on public transportation, walking in a place where there are a lot of people? Bring loving kindness to those you meet. See if you can do that. So let me finish with uh, two quotes and we can have some discussion. Uh, one is from a friend of mine and she put this on her answering machine when they had answering machines. <laughs> Does anyone still have an answering machine? Okay. Mm-hmm. I graduated about a year ago. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, she put this on her answer machine, but you can put it on any message. So it really is a more general point. She, this, was her, this is what people hear. You know, she says, hello, leave a message, etc. And she says, and be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. How would that be on an answering machine? <laughs> so you can maybe do something like that. And then I want to finish with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., And for him, love was at the center of all his uh, social change work. And he said this, I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. I know that love is ultimately the only answer to the problems of humanity. I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. So it can be our, our North Star. You know, this seeing what blocks the heart and then going to what helps us awaken the heart where it awakens most easily. That's a way to organize our practice. So let me just invite us just for a moment. Why don't you reflect just on your own? What are the one or two ways 
that my heart is blocked that I might want to work with. And then secondly, what are the one or two ways that I can most easily access the heart that could be a daily practice, even if it takes five minutes or 10 minutes? What one or two ways of daily or close to daily accessing the kind heart most appeal to me? And then what might I do in the next week? What would I like to do in the next week along these two parameters? So thank you very much. And we have a little bit of time for any questions, reflections, uh, anything that's come through? So we have one on my left here. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll wait for the mic. Yeah. Okay. okay, I've got a loud voice, so. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, the whole time you were talking, I, I am in so much pain. It physical pain. Yeah. It influences my thinking. I mean, yeah. it influences my attitudes. Right. It makes me more judgmental, more impatient, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And um, I was thinking that, like, instead of having my pain inform my being, it's like using loving kindness. Use loving kindness on my pain to kind of reverse it. Because when you're in pain for a long time, you hate it. You hate your body. You, you know, yeah. you just want to go away, for God's sakes, for like five minutes, you yeah. know. And, um, I, I've I've never really tried loving kindness, you know, using that in reverse because yeah. I just, you know, pain is an interesting thing relative to the other things that you brought up in the yeah. sense that um, you you feel like you're not doing it to yourself. You're like a victim as opposed to oh, I'm judgmental. I can do something about that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I just really wanted to acknowledge that because yeah. it it makes my life really much more difficult than I would like it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And there's a there's a lot a lot there and um, maybe maybe, uh, I was going to ask a question in addition to giving loving kindness possibly to the pain are there you know when I was asking are there uh, places that sort of help you access the uh, sense of the kind heart that you know are are helpful Uh, did other things come to mind as well oh yeah listening to the wind in the trees and the birds singing yeah that just does it for me yeah, because it's really, uh, I mean, the, one of the principles, I'm sure you've worked with a lot, is that there is pain, but it's not the entirety of your experience, mm-hmm. right? And so when we bring the attention to the other part of the experience, that's, I'm sure you do that all the time, right? Try to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that, that's, that's a core principle. Um, 
And yeah, but to, because uh, I would think that bringing loving kindness to the pain would be, is beautiful, but it's, it's not, it's, um, I think of it as more advanced. It's, it sounds harder to me, mm-hmm. right? And so you might warm up with it by going elsewhere. Okay. <laughs> first, okay. That, that's, my, that's my only thought, that it, it's uh, maybe, yeah, to warm up so you're kind of in the groove with that sense of uh, kindness okay. before you go there. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. A lot more we could say, but that, and thank you for being willing to share that. Yeah. Any other questions, reflections? Yeah. Hi, I like how you were speaking about kindness in a way that represents the tenderness of the heart that we have in all of us together. Yeah. And when we spread spread kindness, spread prayer. I don't know, spread kindness, prayer. Yeah. We're all working in that space of the open heart, the available heart, and seeing that in all. And I really yeah, thank you. touch on that. Yeah, I think I remember Sylvia, uh, you know, who um, teaches typically when I'm not here, and, and she was my mentor in learning to teach loving-kindness practice. And she spoke about loving-kindness practice as a kind of fervent prayer, I mean, prayer is not a typical, typical Buddhist word or word we use as a translation of uh, a word in the original languages. But that's, she spoke of it like that. It's kind of like a continual, the way we, particularly the way we use phrases, it's a continual invocation of let me move towards kindness as best I can. And then again, we remember just one point that I, did, I didn't come out today is that the... the the uh, practices themselves of loving kindness and compassion and so forth, their intention practices where we're trying to incline towards kindness. And even if we have a prayer, I want to go to of towards kindness, uh, they tend, when people actually do them, they tend to bring stuff up. It's not like you just, okay, I'll do loving kindness. Okay, 100% kindness, warmth, friendliness. Uh, not like that. It doesn't work like that. Rather, we incline in that direction, we have the intention, and then a lot of stuff happens. You know, we're, we're, we're inclined in that direction, and then we say, why am I giving loving kindness to you? You've got it better than me. What about me? Right, so we, or, we, or we come up against our anger or something like that. And so the uh, loving kindness itself has a kind of prayer, but sometimes, you know, stuff comes up. And again, we use the, the, the phrase purification, for these practices. They're not just straightforward, I will produce loving kindness. Let me just radiate it out. Rather, as we incline in that direction, then we see what happens because other things happen. But the more we do it, and if we have good instruction, it opens things up and there's, in the big picture, there's more and more of that. Yeah, but it's a nice way to think that we're just continually, you know, I'm continually offering that to the world. What a wonderful way to be. Right, that's kind of the flavor of what you're saying. Yeah. Please, in the corner, we're giving you a little workout. <laughs> I just want to follow up on that question. So, if anger or yeah. self judgment come up, do you recommend that you shift to a mindful practice or? 
Try and stick with the loving kindness if you're not really feeling very loving or kind. Oh, in the middle of loving kindness practice? Yeah. Yeah, if we're in the middle of loving kindness practice and something else comes up, the general guidance we give for the practice itself, when we're doing, okay, I'm doing 10 minutes or 15 minutes or half an hour formal loving kindness practice with the phrases and so forth, the general guideline is uh, because it's a concentration practice, we generally try to just stay with the phrases. And so if something comes up that comes up quickly or it's just like a a random thought, unlike our mindfulness practice, we don't try to label it. We don't say, oh, planning, you know. We don't try to go there. And if something comes through, even a moment of anger or irritability or self-judgment that comes through rather quickly and just comes and goes, we don't do anything with it. We just come back to loving kindness. It's more if it has some degree of duration and intensity. Maybe it lasts, start, it's been there for a while, maybe two or three minutes or something, has some intensity. Then we uh, would shift to mindfulness practice if that's possible. You know, if it's in the workable range, we would shift towards mindfulness. If it's not in the workable range, if all of a sudden it's overwhelming, then we would use one of those other tools that I mentioned that help us come back to balance. That could be, uh, uh, could be, you know, sometimes could be just getting up, changing things. There could be some meditations that help us come back to balance. But if I'm sitting there doing loving kindness and I just go into outrageous anger that just takes me away, then I try, would try to maybe, what tool helps me come back to balance? Yeah. And uh, but that's the basic idea. The the first choice would be to use mindfulness. If it's in the workable range, we have self judgment or, or anger. Try to be mindful of it, as long as we can kind of say, okay, what's it like in the body? Let me feel that. What's it like? What's my storyline? Let me notice that. And and then if it goes away, we just go back to the loving kindness. So that that would be the guideline, you know, like sometimes in our retreats, people are doing a lot of loving kindness, but maybe, you know, like uh, there was, maybe there was a loss. Someone died who was close uh, in the last six months and the person's never had a chance to deal with the grief, right? And in a retreat, sometimes that comes up. And if the person was really going into the grief and it was taking one away from loving kindness, we would say, stay with the grief, right? If it's not there, you can come back to loving kindness. Right? So, thanks. Hey. Good. Well, we're at we're at time. It looks like there's no other uh, no other hand up. So let's again uh, let's again sit and bring to mind. Again, what was uh, most helpful from the morning, very possibly connected with our theme of seeing what blocks the heart and seeing what helps it open. But maybe there was something else. Maybe you had an insight during the sitting totally unrelated to our theme, and maybe that was the most important thing for you. So see what's important from the morning. And then how many of us, you can raise your hand, would like to 
give some focus to this sense of seeing what blocks the heart and doing that would help open. How many of you would like to commit to focusing on that in the next week? Okay. So set your intention. What's your intention for this next week for your, for your practice? And I'll be here, bridge traffic withstanding. And we can compare notes. So just set your intention for the next week. Particularly what you'll do uh, either later today or tomorrow, because that's really the crucial thing for keeping it going. And then we close a traditional way. May the benefits of our morning be there for us, be there for all the beings in our lives, and also be there for all other beings so that we all ultimately, we offer the benefits of the morning to all beings, which includes us. So thanks for your presence and kind attention and uh, we'll continue. Thanks.